0: Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of taking the complex and making it simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin.
1: Thanks, Tom, and welcome everyone to another episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. We are so fortunate today to be joined by a very special guest, a great friend of Merlin Wealth Management and of mine, Rockefeller Capital Management CEO, Greg Fleming. For those of you who may not know, Greg is uh, truly an icon in the financial services industry, aside from leading Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and Morgan Stanley Investment Management, which is where we met. Greg also ran Merrill Lynch's global investment banking business. Most notably, Greg was the chief operating officer at Merrill during the great financial crisis and successfully negotiated the firm's sale to Bank of America, which essentially saved a hundred plus year legacy of that franchise. I also learned a few weeks ago that Greg also negotiated the sale of the remaining piece of Bloomberg owned by Merrill to Michael Bloomberg during the crisis, which secured some uh, critical operating capital for Merrill. And Bloomberg agreed to a a really fair deal during that time, which was a testament to Greg's leadership and also to Mr. Bloomberg's character. Um, Greg is a Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude graduate of Colgate University with a bachelor's degree in economics. And his uh, JD comes from Yale University Law School. Greg, as always, it is great to be with you. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you, Michael. Good morning. Great to be here. Great to be uh, talking uh, with you and, uh, and having your clients and friends of Rockefeller hear it. Awesome.
1: Um, I wanted to start, you know, we, we, we in the preface, we talked about your experience during the great financial crisis. And, uh, you know, I, I quoted a statistic in our latest uh, client quarterly newsletter, which went out uh, about a week ago. And uh, it's, I, I said in that, in that piece that uh, from 1984 through 2016, every rate rising cycle has ended with a financial crisis of some kind. Certainly not as severe as uh, 08 and 09, uh, but they've all ended with one, and they've all uh, caused a reversal in Fed uh, policy uh, based on that crisis. Uh, the crisis we're seeing right now could potentially be happening in Europe and the UK, uh, with the volatile energy prices, uh, consumers needing support to pay bills, with pay utility bills and food bills, utilities needing support because they've got losses from bad hedges, banks being on the hook for those losses, and governments trying to figure out how to support uh, both the citizenry the energy markets and the banking system, you know, it smells a lot like 08 and 09. And I wanted to uh, get you to maybe comment on on what you're seeing, if you're seeing any of that or, or, or something else looming on the horizon.
2: Well, Michael, uh, part of the backdrop to the time you talked about 84 to 2015, 16 uh, has been the buildup of excesses during that time at, at different points in the cycle. I mean, that's clearly what led into the credit crisis. The, magnitude of uh debt that was built up over many years in the u.s at all levels uh and then uh the, the real parabolic growth of uh mortgage and subprime mortgage in the in the first decade of uh, of the 21st century and then you've got uh something that is so scaled the credit crisis really is a very challenging time so excess tends to do that and we have come through an unprecedented time first pandemic uh global pandemic uh, really in 100 years, uh, the reaction of authorities, monetary and fiscal, to try to fill the gap, uh, given so many people uh, not working or working uh, remotely. Uh, So that uh, clearly caused a buildup, and now uh, we're trying to rewind from that, and we're doing that against uh, a, uh, a challenging macroeconomic and geopolitical backdrop, as you know. Uh, with a war in Europe for the first time in uh uh you know in uh, over uh, 70 years and and with uh with challenges in so many places so that is fertile ground for the type of thing you're talking about now to to counter that a little bit in the US the financial sector is quite well capitalized and in a very different spot than it was uh, 14 years ago and financial markets uh are are working uh you know quite smoothly here that doesn't mean that uh You know, as the economy continues to slow, we go into a recession uh, that uh, there won't be uh, deals that are challenged and, you know, problems that start to emerge in in parts of the capital structure, even here. But um, hard to see it being something that uh, approaches anything like what we dealt with in the credit crisis in the U.S. Now, you correctly point out different parts of the world, including Europe, are in different positions. Um, The thing I'd say there is... um, would be quite helpful uh, in in terms of working through that, if monetary and fiscal policies on the same page. A lot of what's happened in the UK is the divergence of fiscal for monetary. and um, you know the the Bank of England trying to step into uh, the the proposals by the the new government around, as you know, uh, tax cuts and things that were going to make an inflationary problem worse. Uh, and and you can have problems created when when you have divergent uh, strategies at that level. Um, the good news in the U.S. is it seems to be mostly lined up. I mean, we still have a federal government that, uh, you know, uh, to quote Jason Furman uh, with the the student debt forgiveness was uh, he said that was like uh, putting gasoline on a fire. Uh, you know, so there's still fiscal stimulus. Um, but there are at least noises and, and and actions coming out of the federal government that they recognize inflation is a big challenge. The Fed's going after it aggressively, and uh, if fiscal policy stays uh, somewhat in line with monetary, that that's really important. But I think that's part of the lesson coming out of Europe right now.
1: Yeah, it's got it's hard enough for us here with one central bank. They've got to coordinate twenty seven different central banks. So yes, uh, I, I wanted to. You you wrote a great article that I read. Uh, a couple of months ago about, uh, the job market. You know, one thing I think that a lot of clients have asked me is, is this, this disconnect or this mismatch in the job market right now, where you've got 10 million, 11 million jobs available and whoever you look at six to 8 million people looking for jobs, yet those jobs aren't getting filled and those people aren't getting, uh, the new jobs and how, how does that mis how does that mismatch get either get resolved or how did it come about? And I thought you had some really great insights in your, uh, in your article. Um, One of the things I thought was super interesting is you started by saying that the majority of the 900 U.S. CEOs say that this is their number one external threat. So can you talk about that? Um, Maybe even how Rockefeller's handling it uh, from from that perspective? And then also, you know, how does that mismatch uh, get either realigned or or resolved?
2: You know, there's a couple of things I'd say here, Michael. One, uh, the uh, the need for workers kind of snuck up on people. If you remember at, at the beginning of the pandemic, when 20 million people went out of work, there was a fear that many of them wouldn't get their jobs back, that maybe robots and technology would step in. So, you know, that shifted pretty quickly uh, as we came out of the pandemic. And uh, uh, the, 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 st- the statistic you quoted, you know, you know, just more jobs than people uh, is not something that anybody foresaw two or three years ago. Does show, Michael, again, the speed with which uh, things change in the current world and also the, the you know, the conventional thinking uh so that it's snuck up on people but it's here and it's real and that's why those 900 ceos are saying what they're saying Um, and even at this point in the cycle where the feds tightening labor markets have stayed tight so the the piece that i wrote said a couple things one uh when you look back at the uh, uh the course of our history in this country so many positives from uh legal immigration in terms of the number of companies that have been started by ceos uh, the number of uh, of workers that have had an impact that were uh, immigrants. Uh, so that's part of our legacy and an important part of our legacy. So bringing in skilled labor that's going to continue to help be an engine in the American economy, that's just the positive. So that was one point that I was making. And the second point I was making is, uh, you know, we, we haven't had very much um, legal immigration in recent years with the pandemic and with the, the federal government, the two parties being unable to agree on a plan, a lot of debate around illegal immigration. It's in the national interest to to, uh, to secure our borders, but then to put in place a smart immigration plan to fill this gap in workers, to bring in workers from places uh, uh, where uh, the, the way they're going to approach their jobs and being part of the United States is a positive for all of us. So, you know, in in, in countries like Ukraine and Afghanistan, there are many uh, workers who would be important parts of our labor who want to be here. So, you know, I think the Biden administration said we would bring in 100,000 Ukrainian uh, immigrants. You know, why are we uh, talking only about 100,000 in a society that's got such tight labor? Um, So, you know, I think that most of the CEOs that I talk to, many of whom uh, I've known for a long time, this is the theme we can all agree on, uh, and it, it could be good. Uh, you know, it's an engine for the entire economy and a, and a positive for all of us.
1: I, I read a great book called Disunited Nations by Peter Zihan. And uh, in the book, he talked about the fact that while America may not be seen as the superpower that it was 15 or 20 years ago, it's still the best house in a bad neighborhood. And a lot of the talent around the world is attracted to come here either by wars or disjointedness within their own countries. And he talked a lot about that happening in China as China's economy and its its social issues start to unfold. But I think you're 100 percent right. It looks like that the first wave of that may be from Russia and Ukraine. And why aren't we opening our borders to those people? Because I think it's a win-win.
2: Well, it's clearly had an enormously positive impact on the economy and the society at large for so such a long period of time. I forget the statistic, but it's it's literally a, a significant percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs are immigrants, uh, and and that's just creating jobs and growth in our economy. And and it's some it's a and as you said, people around the world are still drawn to the United States. Well, let's take advantage of that uh, and put put in place a, a an immigration policy that we can all agree on across all parties.
1: Totally agree. Um, I wanted to turn our attention uh, quickly to something else. I know is on the mind of a lot of our listeners, which is. Uh, The mixed messages we're hearing today about the Fed's aggressive interest rate policy, I I don't think anybody was opposed to the fact or or was surprised by the fact that the Fed had to reverse policy. If anything, I think the criticism has been that they didn't reverse course soon enough. Um, Our former colleague at Morgan Stanley, Stephen Roach, um, in a CNBC interview, I think it was late in August, said that he felt that Chairman Powell would need to uh, take the Fed funds rate to Volcker-like levels uh, of, say, 10 percent or so and that unemployment would need to go to 5 or 6%, which, as you said, may not be possible based on the tightness in the labor market. But he felt that nothing the Fed has done has kicked in so far. On the other hand, we, we tend to follow uh, our friends at ISI, Evercore ISI, a lot, and, and they've been pounding the table on the fact that with the drastic reduction in money supply, we had, we had 40% growth in money supply during the pandemic and in 2021, and now it's negative uh, for the first time, I think, since the 1930s. Uh, but but that alone, they said, has already uh, laid the table or set the table for inflation to go back to that 25 to 3% level, um, and that the Fed is focusing too much on backward-looking data as opposed to looking at what their, their policy moves are going to do a year or two years from now. W- what are your thoughts on current Fed policy, and, and can you help us make sense of those diverging views?
2: Yes, michael. Uh, the um I think the truth is probably somewhere in the in the middle there. First of all, one thing that I, I would agree on uh, is that um they started very late uh, and in fact, continued to buy bonds for a, a year after there was a vaccine. And then you had a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus alongside of that. So the scale of uh, of the growth in in uh, liquidity across monetary and fiscal policy, uh, is much larger than it probably had to be, certainly with with hindsight. Although there were people at the time like Larry Summers saying, you need to start turning these spigots off faster. So um, the, the problem is bigger than it needed to be. Uh, I would look to uh, our colleague, Jimmy Chang, who is the chief investment officer for Rockefeller Global Family Office. He looked at an analysis that said since 1970 in every Fed tightening cycle, they didn't stop raising rates until uh the federal funds rate uh was uh, higher crossed the the cpi at the time so you're you're looking at you know eight ish percent we're going to get the new number today yeah. uh and three percent so where do those numbers cross uh and there's a lot of insight in 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 uh you know provided by that so you know i, I still think that's probably uh you know uh in the four and a half percent range could it be five have a hard time seeing anything like uh, double digits on, on Fed funds, which uh, I guess Stephen called for. Um, but I think they're very focused now. They know they they waited too long. They know, and and, and Michael, I talked about this 18 months ago myself uh, uh, in, in, in some interviews. Inflation expectations uh, are a key part of inflation. And for so many years, we had no inflation. I think people lost sight of how challenging it would be if, uh, everybody starts to expect higher prices and higher wages because the, you ask for the wage, you expect to see the higher price. It, it bleeds itself through the, the economy everywhere, and we're all seeing it. You know, where somebody says you're you're looking to buy something, it's like, well, wait a minute, the price went up a lot, and the person selling it to you says, yes, but my supplier costs went up. It just keeps cycling. That was the risk in letting it go too far, and they've now, that risk has come home. Uh You know, there is an expectation throughout the economy that prices and wages will be higher in in many different places. So they know that now and they're going to, in my eyes, not stop until they really break the back of this. So I think they will continue to go uh, pretty aggressively. They might even in November, we'll see what the inflation data comes out today. But in a few weeks, they could go at 75 basis points. Again, I don't know, maybe it's 50. But I think they're going to keep going pretty aggressively here. And I think the Jimmy Chang analysis uh, mm-hmm. is, is good insight into where they'll stop. They're going to make sure that it's coming down and those lines are closer to crossing. One one more thing I'd say here, Michael. The Economist ran an interesting piece a week or two ago saying you know, over time, maybe they'll tolerate slightly higher inflation now, and they may. You know, this 2% target, once they've got it, uh, they feel like they've got it more under control. They may say, OK, we're OK with, you know, two and a half or three uh, or something higher than they were pre-pandemic. Um, and and rates will stay higher than they might have otherwise, you know, if, if they would have settled it. If the uh, Fed funds would have settled at three or three and a half, maybe it settles at four-ish. So I do think there's a possibility you have that pivot, but that'll be after they feel like they've delivered the breaking the back of it.
1: Sure. Just as a follow-up, you you talk about the balance between DPI coming down and Fed funds going up, and then also this idea, which I, I, I agree with you, and I think a lot of people are saying, which is we may just live in a world where a higher level of inflation is accepted. But some of that, to me, comes from the fact that this this round of inflation isn't really being generated by the traditional source. The traditional source is you have an overheated economy, which creates inflation, and you know the Fed raising rates cools that economy down, and that usually works. But you know these aren't the same. It's not the same causes this time. It doesn't seem. It seems like, as you mentioned, the tight labor market, or uh, you know, or other factors, the, the supply chain issues, um, the fact that we had money supply you know go crazy uh, over the last two years. Those seem to be the real causes and so it's almost like the feds buying time for those things to work themselves out at the same time that they're raising rates and maybe that's how that balance occurs does that does that resonate at all
2: it, it does and in fact michael it's it's it also uh, is tied to how we got here so that definitely resonates uh, remember you know i talked about the fact that uh, when the pandemic started the the worry was that people wouldn't get their jobs back and then you know we end up with not enough workers the other worry at the beginning of the pandemic was that uh We'd be in a deflationary spiral. Uh, they they poured so much liquidity, fiscal and monetary, into the equation. Uh, that's obviously not an issue uh, at this point in time. We've got the inflation. On top of that, though, there were things that they didn't foresee. They didn't foresee the energy market shocks coming, you know, a lot of that tied to a, a war in Europe, which, which uh, wasn't part of their planning horizon. Um, I don't think they they thought labor markets would stay this tight. Remember, people were worried about, are people going to get their jobs back? So you're right. There were things layered on that um, weren't part of uh, the the uh, the thinking two or three years ago or previous cycles. So I, I think that's that's part of why they are where they are now.
1: I just, I, I just know, I, I remember vividly after the financial crisis, people saying that they didn't believe in the recovery of the economy because they felt like it was manufactured and that the way we would know – Is when there was organic inflation being generated because the economy was overheating but this doesn't feel like that you know this feels like something as you said more manufactured from other other causes
2: right which is actually one of the concerns in them getting it down because there are some things even with rates and and pulling liquidity out of the economy that they have less impact on including the energy space and the war in europe uh so you know that they've got a that that's gotta factor that into the whole equation too
1: absolutely let's um let's turn our attention to the investment markets which obviously um, our listeners are, are are keen on hearing uh, our views on uh, Merlin Wealth Management, as you know, and, and as our as our clients know, uh, has our own uh, asset management business sort of built inside and you know, our strategies today are positioned as defensively as they've been since the financial crisis. We're holding um, large average cash balances. We also have a hedge in place in our three equity strategies uh, using puts on the NASDAQ and the S&P. And so while we're playing defense in the short term, we obviously believe that there'll be very attractive long-term opportunities derived from today's dislocations. Some of those opportunities are presenting themselves in non-public markets like private equity or real estate. We obviously talked earlier about that possibly happening in Europe. Uh, We've we've been historically underweight European companies in our strategies because the fundamentals and the valuations of US companies back in 2010 were so much more attractive. Um, but that could reverse itself if, if some of the dislocations in the European economies happen the way we talked about earlier. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just curious. Obviously, we think that as a long-term investor, you have to kind of remain resolved during uh, during times like this. And while there may be some short-term pain, obviously sticking to the discipline is what, uh, is what creates long-term uh, consistent performance, which we've been fortunate enough to benefit from. How do you think about today's investment environment?
2: Well, Michael, one thing I'd say about today's investing environment, uh, and and uh, this is consistent with everything that we're doing at Rockefeller Capital Management, as you know, advice is critical. Uh, I mean, it is a very challenging world out there. Uh, there's a lot going on. Having uh, world class advice uh, through uh, our, you know, the, the 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 private advisors that we have in place, Michael Merlin, and um, uh, and sticking with it through uh, the cycle is is critically important uh retail investors often move at exactly the wrong time in times like dislocation here uh so advice today is is so important uh you know i think uh volatility uh is the word that we're we're going to be dealing with until the fed finishes this cycle so um you know i i I put a six 12 month time frame on that uh you know uh uh, the, the, there has been this maxim in in my life and yours, don't fight the Fed. We have a Fed this time that's as aggressive in going after inflation as anything we've seen, obviously, since Volcker uh, in the uh, early 80s. And by the way, that was a very different time. People ask me for parallels, and, and I say, uh, you know, w- really hard to draw parallels across events 44 decades apart. I mean, that was a world without technology, you know, it's just a completely different uh, situation, um, But it was a Fed determined to break the back of inflation. That's the parallel we have today. We have a Fed determined to break the back of this. While that's happening, there's going to be significant volatility. As you said, there are going to be dislocations. There might be sub markets uh, that, that have uh, particular challenges. Uh, you know, different parts of the uh, of the capital structure uh, in different parts of the world. So, uh, you know, r- you know, I'm cautious because of that, and 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 uh, and counsel clients to stay really close to uh, world class advice and uh, and be careful. Um, uh, you know, during these times, a- a- until we see the other side of the Fed tightening cycle.
1: Absolutely, I totally agree. It, it, it's it's hard to foresee a scenario where markets do meaningfully better with while the Fed is continuing to raise rates
2: at the pace that they are with the the uh with the language that they're they're putting out sure. there remember you know there was this notion that the fed was, was you know there was a fed uh uh put or or you know there was there was dovish language that the language coming from the fed now is as direct as i've seen in my career yeah you know with phrases that they've tried to avoid like well there will be pain and there will be job losses i mean you know they're very clear that uh they're going to uh, break the back of inflation, and if there are costs associated with that, and it's, there's an increasing agreement there will be, they're going to keep going.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think even if they gave us a, a, a whiff of when they would, when all this would either end or when rate 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 increases would start to moderate, I think the market would have a, a a nice relief
2: rally. And that'll come at some point, Michael. You know, at some point, you know, as they continue to move here, and as you start to see the numbers come down. Uh, there will be the other side where the language it starts to change, and and there's a moderating to the, the to the tightening. Um, you know, having said that, the the quantitative tightening side, as you know, their balance sheet—if uh, they're rolling off 100 and 125 billion in assets a month—it's going to take a while to get that balance sheet down. So uh, there will be a a quantitative tightening uh, phase of this for quite some time. They may have to pause that at different points in time. We'll see. Good
1: point. It's a good point. Um, Let's let's turn to Rockefeller Capital Management real quick. Um, I I wanted to get your opinion while while we had you. Uh, one of the things that I was really excited about this year um, is that we were able to work with uh, the strategic advisory. Obviously, investment banking is in your DNA, and you know we've got some world class investment bankers here. Uh, we were fortunate enough to work on a deal with one of our clients and uh, and the strategic advisory, and it was um, it was a great experience. And uh, when the when that press release went out, we got a lot of uh, positive feedback from clients saying, wow, we didn't realize that you guys had that and uh, a lot of, lot of interest in, in those services. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things here at Rockefeller capital management and also within the family office um, that may be underappreciated. Do you, um, what are some things that you might think fall kind of into that category after, you know, kind of three plus years of, of us being, uh, being in, involved in this?
2: Well, you know, Michael, the, the vision when we started Rockefeller capital management uh, in 2018 was uh to 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 be all things to some clients uh, under this incredibly iconic rockefeller name through private advisors of uh you know world class uh that 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 were able to deliver all those things so we we wanted to provide investment advice and and uh, planning and all of that that is more core to to what people had historically expected uh in wealth management for high net worth and ultra net worth clients but we also wanted to offer family office services generational work we have two trust companies as you know um, and a big part of what we wanted to offer and we set this up from the start was uh, a world-class strategic advisory investment banking services because so many american families make their wealth through building businesses Absolutely. and we wanted to be able to provide them advice on that uh and and that was the notion and that's really why right from the start We had Rockefeller Global Family Office. We had the Rockefeller Asset Management Business, uh, which had been a legacy business within uh, the former company. But we built from scratch Rockefeller Strategic Advisory with great bankers, uh, many of whom I've worked with and you've worked with for decades, uh, so that you could bring them into clients that have built businesses uh, and and created wealth through that, that avenue, which is a big part of the American wealth scene. It's a great Part of our society, we we continue to innovate and create businesses and grow them, uh, and we want to be able to provide advice on that to people that were already our clients because they're already talking to Merlin about their wealth management services. So that synergy was a really important part of what we wanted to build in here, uh, and and it's working really well, and and I think we'll continue to going forward.
1: Well, I, I you know I, I always talk about the alignment of values between. Rockefeller Capital Management and Merlin Wealth Management. And I think you just articulated really well how that how that alignment uh, kind of plays itself out on in the day-to-day basis and how and how we help clients and families and multi-generational families, which is uh, you know where we spend a lot of our time. So I appreciate those comments. Um I, I really want to thank you, Greg, for being with us today and spending this time. Um, and and I wanted to steal a page from your book as 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 you, Always end your uh, podcast and the great interviews you do with some of the industry's uh, you know, top leaders. Uh, I wanted to close with a quote, um, and I know this is one that's a, a favorite of yours and mine. Um, it's from Aristotle who says quote, "We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit." And I know I speak for everybody at Merlin Wealth Management, all our team members and our clients when I say that we can't appreciate enough, we can't tell you enough how much we appreciate the fact that you drive. Uh, excellence throughout this organization and through everything you do, and uh, I want you to know how much it resonates with all of us and uh, how much we appreciate you as our as our leader and and partner. And uh, you know, we look forward to a lot more uh, spending a lot more time with you over the years to come.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Our clients uh, deserve that uh, relentless focus on excellence every day, uh, and they're going to continue to get it from me and you. And uh that's why you guys are thriving here so uh happy to be here i enjoyed being on the other end of the interview this time
1: sounds good i th- hope, hope everybody else feels the same way uh, th- thanks everybody for listening uh to uh, another episode of taking the complex and making it simple and we'll see you uh we'll see you again soon thanks a lot
0: thanks again for listening to this episode of taking the complex and making it simple the merlin wealth management educational podcast for more information on merlin wealth management please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker, dealer, and investment advisor duly registered with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.